Hi, I'm Rachel Aiello. And I'm Nick Nanos. And welcome to Trendline. So Nick, just when we thought we'd hit our pandemic bottom. To uh, mandate the closure of places like playgrounds and parks, which in my view at this point are absolutely essential for people's mental and physical health when we're clamping down and tightening the screws makes no sense at all. I think it's very reasonable to, to quite frankly, encourage people to go outdoors uh, because, you know, it's really good for mental health, it's good for physical health, and it can be done in a very, very safe manner. So I, I really hope the province rethinks this because I think uh, perhaps walking back on this would do a lot of good. Uh, do you believe that this government, this Ontario provincial government, has adequately listened to the science, to the doctors, uh, and to the expertise required to get us through this third wave? Unfortunately not. You know, this is really about listening closely, having an open mind and forgetting about political considerations. No, they haven't. So, Nick, are you hanging in there? Ay, ay, ay. I was hanging in there and then it was a roller coaster ride almost day by day as we're trying to figure out what the uh, what the provincial government was trying to do. So I'm okay now. I'm okay. Do I have to say that three times? I am okay. <laughs> say it as many times it takes you to believe it. <laughs> so yeah, um, of course, after entering the lockdown, which um, was kind of our focus last episode, another stay-at-home order was issued, and you know, parks were closed. Well, uh, playgrounds, anyways. Police were uh, out. Uh, both of those moves seem to be. Um, walked back or definitely have been walked back, at least when it comes to the playgrounds. And more and more police forces are saying they're not going to be randomly checking and stopping to make sure you are out of your house for the reason that is essential. So Nick, this sure did stir up a lot of emotions. Oh, absolutely. You know, the, the interesting thing, Rachel, is that, uh, you know, we just finished a survey asking people about the emotions that they feel when it comes to kind of describing the federal government. And actually, I can imagine what they felt like afterwards, but you know, the, the top emotions, especially in the province of Ontario right now, have to do with pessimism and anger, that those are the two things that people say that they're feeling. And just think, Rachel, that was before Thursday. Who knows what happened after Thursday? Because I think for many Canadians, they're just frustrated with every level of government. And, uh, and, you know, I think uh, when everyone, anyone steps up, they just, uh, they just start to just start getting wound up uh, emotionally as a result. So who knows, who knows what those numbers are now, but they're probably not very good. Yeah, I think it's a collective example of when there is enough public will and outrage, um, governments can be moved and policies can be changed. Uh, and of course, we've talked about before, um, you know, they needed to change their approach and change their messaging. Um, I'm not sure, though, this was the kind of change uh, that we were talking about. I, I'm just wondering, uh, from your perspective, do you think that any of those lessons have been learned at this point? Are we starting to message our way out of this pandemic differently? Or are the policies kind of meeting the moment that they should be? You know, you know, we talked about this before, Rachel. You know, the thing is, is that what people want is some sort of certainty and stability. They don't expect everything to be over. But, you know, when the when it looks like the rules get changed and that there are flip-flops out there, it just makes people, it, it undermines confidence. It undermines confidence in the government. It under, undermines governments in the in our leaders. It also undermines confidence in our public health authorities and our ability to fight the pandemic. So, you know, the, the flip-flop is the worst thing that can possibly happen because people want at least stability. They don't want certainty because no one can guarantee anything 
but they just want stability on a, on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of what it means to take their kids out to the playground or just to walk out in their neighborhood. And uh, you know what we saw, at least in the province of Ontario, is a significant lack of stability in messaging over a few days. And it was basically a, a significant misstep. Right. And of course, Ontario isn't alone in being deep into the third wave right now. Uh, a lot of provinces are seeing new restrictions and soaring cases, ICUs filling up. Uh, we've been watching kind of closely how the public is feeling about politicians navigating through the pandemic. And you touched on this, but I'm just wondering, um, are you anticipating seeing those uh, numbers start to shift and uh, sentiments start to feel differently about both federal and provincial politicians? Um, now that they have, you know, a, a good long runway of uh, we're into the third wave, things are still getting worse. Um, do you anticipate that's going to start to show up in the numbers you're getting? Well, there hasn't really been any, what's, you know, what's the good news? Oh, do you notice there's an awkward pause? Because there is no <laughs> good news at this time, other than the fact that some Canadians are getting uh, vaccinated and, and more and more are, are eligible. Beyond that, there hasn't really been a lot of positive news. It's going to be interesting when we continue tracking on that report card for the feds and for provinces uh, to see what happens. But right now, uh, you know, apart from some vaccinations, uh, really, there hasn't been a lot of quite very positive news on the front when it comes to fighting the pandemic. Yeah. And so, of course, this, uh, what we've seen in Ontario anyways, has definitely come into the federal realm. Uh, so what we saw over this past weekend was the federal government getting involved. And I think you have to factor in, you know, there are over 100 federal seats in Ontario, and those are all constituents that the prime minister has promised to um, have their backs as well. Uh, I'm just wondering, what do you make of the federal government's decision to uh, intervene this weekend, at least come forward and say, you know what, Ontario, you rebuffed our first offer to help roll out vaccines. Um, but we're going to be sending help, or at least we're standing up ready to come in with federal health workers. Was this the right move for Trudeau to make? Well, I think I understand uh, why he did it from a from a public policy and a political perspective. You know, from a public policy perspective, you know what? It makes sense for the prime minister of the day to uh, to help the Canada's largest province if there's a problem. It allows uh, it allows the federal government to put a I'll call it the white hat on, uh, and I'm sure that uh, if there is an impact from this particular move, that you know, the, the prime minister will not, uh, will not forget or not allow Ontarians to forget that uh, it was the federal government that was proactively trying to help Ontarians at a time of difficulty. So I think uh, you, you roll this all up, the policy imperative, the constitutional imperative, and also the political imperative. And I can understand why the feds are doing this because it probably makes sense on a, on a number of fronts. Yeah, and so here's a bit of what Trudeau had to say uh, this week about why they are going ahead and helping out Ontario. The third wave is hitting a lot of places very hard, and that includes our largest province and Canada's largest city. The best public health advice tells us the way to roll back this surge right away is to starve the virus by strictly following public health guidelines and restricting interactions with others. As I said this weekend, while people do that, we're standing up the help that Ontarians need. We're deploying healthcare staff and equipment from across federal departments to Ontario, and specifically the GTA, where the situation is most serious. We're also working with provinces and territories that have extra healthcare capacity, and we will cover the cost and logistics of getting that support to Ontario. 
And so this, of course, came after uh, late last week, the rebuffing of uh, an offer for Red Cross assistance. Um, and of course, we heard there from Ontario uh, Premier Doug Ford saying, well, we don't actually need help administering doses. We just need more doses. And he's gone to consulates and he's made every effort, it seems, to try to um, put blame on the federal government for being in the third wave, saying the fact that there hasn't been enough vaccinations is the reason why so many Ontarians are getting uh, infected right now. What do you make of Ontario Premier Doug Ford's framing of this as a vaccine supply issue? Well, you know, the thing is, is uh, there is a vaccine supply issue, and this has been compounded by the fact that for a couple of the vaccines, they've been put on pause because of uh, complications in a, in a very small number of, of individuals. So, you know, the, the fundamental challenge right now is to get as many individuals vaccinated as possible. And the province doesn't feel that it has the supply of vaccinations from the federal government. And it's a disconnect from a communications perspective. On the one hand, you have the prime minister saying there's there's lots, we've ordered lots. And then we have the, the premier of Canada's largest province basically saying, you know what, the supply's not there. We can't uh, vaccinate people. So I think it's a, it's a fair point for, uh, for Premier Ford to make, because I think the fact of the matter is, is that if Ontario did have the supply, that they would be vaccinating people. But it, there, it, it doesn't have the supply that it believes it needs to get this quick vaccination as, as fast as possible in order to fight this third wave. Right. And at least, um, well, yes, there has been pauses in the U.S. when it comes to um, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Uh, we haven't actually received any of those doses yet. And we're hearing word that likely we'll be getting more AstraZeneca from the U.S. Uh, because they haven't yet approved it there uh, and expecting some movement from um, the advisory committees here about whether or not we can use AstraZeneca in a wider population. I don't know about you, Nick, but I've got a lot of happy 40-year-olds in my social media feeds being able to get their shots. So this is something we'll follow. Um, for sure. But the other big thing we definitely need to dig into, uh, arguably the biggest story in Canadian politics right now was the 2021 budget. Uh, so on April 19th, uh, Finance Minister Christopher Freeland tabled a massive, not only in spending, but in just sheer size, uh, budget document, the first in two years. Uh, and it included more than $100 billion in promised stimulus over the next three years. What is your main takeaway from what we saw from Freeland? Well, you know, first of all, there wasn't any kind of, I'll call it the no orange pill, blue pill, light blue pill, green pill, poison pill, to kind of uh, make the opposition parties want to provoke an election. So that was actually quite significant. Um, the other thing is, is that they wanted to put out a clear message that the support for Canadian enterprises and Canadian individuals would continue to September. But we also got a bit of a glimmer into the, uh, I, it's no longer secret. I was going to say the secret liberal election plan that no one knows. <laughs> it's no longer secret, everybody, because if you looked at the budget, you know, the, the winning coalition, at least it looks like the liberals are chasing after women and childcare, seniors in that uh, nice check, students, environmentalists, probably Quebecers, right, because of the environmental angle and also the childcare angle, angle in terms of what might be a windfall for Quebec. So the... Uh, not so secret, secret plan is now out. It's no longer secret for the Liberals. Yeah, <laughs> and the other thing we have learned is that while this definitely looks like it's going to be an election budget, it doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be an election anytime soon. Um, likely, yes, this will be the document they take into the next campaign, but it's not gonna be because the budget falls. So uh, the developments this week have been that, of course, as we anticipated, the NDP are going to be supporting the government 
propping them up to make sure that these confidence votes pass. Um, so they don't want an election right now in the pandemic, but you are right. I think there is some key promises within this massive tomb of a, of a document uh, that they're going to be able to campaign on. Um, some interesting misses or uh, things that weren't there. Pharmacare, for example, you know, a big promise, no more money. Um, and a few other aspects that I think we'll have to watch for. But like you said, this is kind of their roadmap ahead. This is the next 20 years or so liberal plan. Of course, especially on childcare, they're making promises for 2030 movement before then. Um, but a lot of things that aren't going to really come to fruition by the time Canadians go to the polls. Uh, what do you think of that decision to kind of, you know, put things more in the long-term window and not necessarily promises that they'll be, be able to deliver on in the next, you know, 12 months or so? Oh, can I make a prediction, Rachel? Am I allowed to make Always. Just, just so that I can embarrass you. You can embarrass me in the future. <laughs> well, the Liberals have done this because they will be able to fear monger whenever the next election is, say it's in the fall, they'll be able to fear monger. They're going to say, if you don't support Justin Trudeau and the Liberals, we won't have a national daycare program because those, those conservatives might not be as enthusiastic as we are. So having this long runway uh, allows them to kind of play out and kind of get a lot of political juice and, and play the fear card specifically against the conservatives on a lot of these uh, big issues. And you know what, they've done it in the past. And uh, this, this current strategy, uh, you know, looks like it's aligned with that. At the same time, in fairness, what we have to say is that it's clear that Minister Freeland supports this personally, that it's very important to her personally she sees it as part of her legacy as the Minister of Finance. So the Liberal heart is definitely in the right place. The muscle is behind it, but expect them to, uh, to take advantage and make advantage of this uh, and to try to cast the Conservatives as people that, if, if people voted for them, might uh, undermine or take uh, this, this vision for a national child care program away. Right. And I think absolutely remiss not to note that Christian Freeland made history in tabling this budget as the first federal finance minister who's a woman. Um, and surely I was completely intentional that this was kind of the marquee centerpiece of the document. Um, and I think one of the most fascinating angles on the childcare thing anyways to follow will be the negotiations of provinces and territories. If you've seen anything over the last 14 months of this pandemic is those things are always a little, uh, shall we say, bumpy. Um, so something to keep an eye on there. But because of this more long-term promise and the fact that we aren't facing down the barrel of an election in the next, I would say, safely few months, um, is Trudeau still in good stead? What are your polling numbers showing you about, you know, is this here for the long haul uh, a legitimate, viable option for the Liberals right now? Well, you know, the, the Nano's tracking has the Liberals basically at 36%, the Conservatives at 29 NDP 19 Green Party, I think, is at around 7%. So, uh, so the Liberals have a seven-point advantage, uh, which is comfortable, um, but uh, not massive. And, you know, it'd be, it wouldn't take very much for that gap to close, especially if some Liberals drifted away from, from the, the Red Party over to the Blue Party. Uh, it, could, it could close very quickly. And I think this is where all the uncertainties, Rachel, come into play. You know, uh, how uh, poorly or well will the vaccination roll out? Um, will there be any more controversies related to the we and other stuff that kind of has been dogging uh, the Liberals? How will the economy re be recovering and what will federal provincial relations look like? Because, you know, to your point, we talked about the, you know, the, the child care program. Well, now the provinces know 
that the federal government really, 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 really wants a national childcare program, why wouldn't they take advantage of that to put leverage to ask for something else, right? So the negotiating strength of the federal government, I think will be weak, uh, apart from the fact that they've got cash on the table. So I would expect uh, a bit of friction, I would say, between the federal government and uh, at least some of their provincial partners. Right, and so there you're talking about uncertainty. There are two uh, more certain things I wanted to highlight as our bright spot this episode. Uh, of course, as you're watching this, uh, if not already, uh, federal leaders are starting to get the vaccine. This is because Ontario and other provinces as well have opened up the eligibility for the AstraZeneca vaccine to people 40 and up. Uh, so Prime Minister Freeland, or sorry, Prime Minister and Freeland are uh, working on getting their appointments. Um, Jagmeet Singh got his on Wednesday and uh, Green Party leader Anime Paul is making plans. Aaron O'Toole set to get his over the weekend. So just wanted to note that um, that moment has finally come. Federal leaders are getting their first shots. And as well, there was this really interesting example out of Manitoba this week where we saw Brian Pallister make a deal with North Dakota, the first in North America to see a cross-border sharing of vaccines. So North Dakota is going to be vaccinating truck drivers, essential workers that come back and forth. And I think it's just a really interesting example something I'm going to be watching to see if other provinces try to follow suit, you know, call up other governors and see if that's a deal that could be made. Um, Nick, I'm just curious, where do you stand in the vaccine queue? Oh, I have submitted. I'm waiting. Uh, I <laughs> went online as soon as I could. As soon as I was eligible, I went online to submit. I am, I am anxiously waiting. I won't name uh, where I submitted, but please send me my text. I'm, <laughs> I'm ready to be vaccinated anytime. The other good news is my mom has had her first vaccination. She's just waiting for a second. So it's all, all good. So uh, I'm like a lot of other Canadians and yourself, very happy to get vaccinated with whatever vaccine is offered. I'd be happy to have any vaccine and, uh, and to get that behind me. That is great news, Nick, for sure. Yeah, my parents got their Biden doses, some AstraZeneca sent from the US, um, their shots this week. Uh, definitely a relief for sure. And it's exciting to be able to watch more and more people I know be able to have that extra bit of immunity. Uh, and like you, anxiously awaiting my turn. And uh, as soon as it's there, I'll be there. Uh, even as someone who uh, isn't the best with needles, let's just say that. Oh, listen, um, I'd like to say for the record, I'm a chicken when it comes to needles. I can't look at, I can't look at the needles. I'm like looking at another place, thinking pleasant thoughts. And uh, yeah, so there's an art form. I'd like to say there's an art form to uh, administering needles because you know, for the kids as a parent, you know, there's some nurses that were fantastic at doing, uh, you know, vaccinations for little kids. So, uh, so yeah, it's not. Yeah, uh, here's hoping one of those is the one giving me the job because I'm, yeah, I'm right there with you, Nick. Here's a trained so. professional and trust <laughs> professionals. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. It is just kind of an interesting uh, moment for me. I'm covering vaccines all of the time and somehow it's something that I, um, not the vaccines, I don't have an aversion to, just the needles in the arms and the constant jab. Uh, imagery everywhere, um, but it's a bit desensitizing, so maybe that's a positive. Um, there is one thing you wanted to leave our viewers with, some stuff that we can look forward to uh, for the next episode. Yes, so uh, we're going to be continuing the tracking, the report card, the monthly report card for both the federal and provincial government on vaccinations, and we're probably going to have some tracking numbers on mental health. Let's, let's uh, look into how Canadians are coping with this in terms of not just their physical health, but their mental health and what they think about how their federal government and their provincial government are doing on the vaccination front. 
interesting stuff and that'll be good to inform we know there's money promised in the budget for more mental health and, and targeting especially frontline workers for example who have had more ptsd like experiences during this pandemic so i'm looking forward to having that conversation with you uh nick thank you so much if viewers want to find more information about what you were talking about today where can they do that if you're looking for stats go to the website www.nanos.co or follow me on twitter at nick nik nanos and you can follow me on Twitter at Rach Aiello, and you can find Trendline on ctvnews.ca, the CTV News YouTube page, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.